Revelations 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who testifies to everything he saw. That is the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. Blessed is the one who reads the word, the words of his prophecy, and blessed are those who hear it and take to heart what is written in it, because the time is near. John, to the seven churches in the province of Asia, grace and peace to you from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and has made us to be a kingdom and priests to serve his God and Father, to him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. Look, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him and all the peoples of the earth will mourn because of him. So shall it be. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. I, John, your brother and companion in the, su- in the suffering and kingdom of patient endurance that, our, that are ours in Jesus, was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. On the Lord's day, I was in the spirit and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet which said, write on the scroll that you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Tyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia and Laodicea. I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me And when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And among the lampstands was someone like a son of man, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet with a golden sash around his chest. His head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand, He held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp, double-edged sword. His face was like the sun shining in all its brilliance. When I saw him, I fell at his feet, as though dead. Then he placed his right hand on me and said, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead, and behold, I am alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death and hates. Write, therefore, what you have seen, what is now and what will take place later, the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and of the seven golden lampstands is this. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches.
Thanks, Drew. Uh, we're going to work our way through that passage. We're not going to cover every single detail because there's an awful lot in there, uh, but we're going to do our best to cover the important parts uh, and the parts that will help us as we launch into this uh, yeah, challenging but interesting book. There are outlines. Cheers. There are outlines uh, for you if you'd like to use them or make use of them. If you didn't get one at the door, there's probably still some in the foyer and you can go and grab one. Uh, I've got a picture to show you, another picture. It is a picture of a beautiful woman. She is a stunning woman, exceptional, uh, so beautiful that pages of poetry uh, have been written about this woman. So I'll ask for it. They can go up in the overhead and you can take a look at this woman. (laughs) She's something, isn't she? Uh, Incredible, Uh, unique, we might say. Um, Of course, she lived a long time ago, so there's no photos of her, but this is how she's described for us uh, in the Bible. Her hair like goats, her eyes like doves, her teeth like a flock of shorn sheep, her neck like a tower of David, her lips like scarlet thread and her breasts like gazelles. And there she is in all her glory. (laughs) Something. Yeah, we can can lose that. We don't need to see that anymore. (laughs) Uh, of course, it's pretty dumb, isn't it? Like, I, I'm pretty confident that whoever Solomon was writing about, she didn't look a great deal like that. Uh, and I'm, I'm pretty certain she looked a fair bit better, in fact. And I think we can be pretty certain of that, can't we? I mean, no one would actually think that Solomon's beloved, in all her glory and all her beauty, would actually look so grotesque as that. How do we know that? Well, we know it because the book of Song of Songs is poetry. <laughs> and no one reads poetry like that. Uh, despite what we might have tried to do in English in high school, we, we know it's not literal. It doesn't exactly go as it's written. And so we know the woman was stunning, not grotesque like that picture. But do you know what's strange? What's strange is that when we come to the book of Revelation, we do that mistake, don't we? We try to read the whole thing absolutely literally, which is a mistake. Because Revelation in a way, is poetry. It's an unusual type of poetry. Uh, It's it's poetry, it's prophecy. We call it apocalyptic, which is just a bit confusing. Let's just call it poetry. It's not literal, as in word-for-word literal. We don't have to try to work out which US president is which beast. Uh, We don't have to work out which nation is Gog. Uh, We don't have to work out whether the army of locusts are, in fact, attack helicopters, as one author has suggested. Because not only will that confuse us, it will lead us an awful long way away from what Revelation is all about. So what do we do with Revelation? How do we, how do we crack the code of this, this poetry, this, this strange and unusual book? How do we unscramble uh, all these bizarre pictures that are scattered throughout, which to us seem so strange? What do we do? Well, we actually don't have to look very far. We don't have to look to the the Christian bestsellers list. Uh, We don't have to look to all the books that have commented on it in past. All we actually have to look at is the book of Revelation itself. Because what we have here in chapter 1 is all the answers, in fact, all the keys to understand what this book is all about and to make sense of it and to benefit greatly from it. How do we read Revelation? Well, we let it tell us how to read it and we follow what it says. 
And that's what we're going to do this morning. We're going to pull apart this chapter and find in it the keys to reading this book and to understanding it and to getting the most out of it in the weeks ahead. Uh, First of all, a word for today. Uh, We often call Revelation the Apocalypse. If you've got an older Bible, it might still be titled like that. That's, That's not some cryptic way of referring to it. It's actually just the first word of the book in Greek. The first Greek word in the book is Apocalypse, so they said, let's call it Apocalypse. It, it, it makes sense. Uh, it's not an unusual word in the Greek Bible. It happens 17 other times. And the word Apocalypse doesn't mean some terrible thing that's going to come in the future. All it actually means is unveiling or opening up or revealing, hence why we call the book Revelation. And that tells us something about this book straight away. It says this book is about an opening up. It is about insight. It is about making clear something which previously we couldn't have understood. It tells us that this book's not intended to be cryptic or unintelligible or super mysterious. It tells us it's to be read and understood and in fact celebrated and rejoiced in. Not only in John's day but ours as well. See, this letter is as much for them as it is for us. And we see that clearly in the opening verses, in verses 1 and 2. Let me just read them again. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who testifies to everything he saw, that is, the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. See, one of the most amazing things about the book of Revelation that we're going to see again and again as we work our way through it is how heavily it rests on the Old Testament. Uh, It's hard to account for it all, but it's estimated that there's between 400 and 700 allusions to the Old Testament scattered throughout Revelation. Uh, that's, That's astounding. It's hundreds more than any other book in the New Testament and the first of which we find here in these opening verses. Here in, in, in verses 1 and 2, John is consciously referring back to the book of Daniel, to Daniel chapter 2. Uh, if you know the story, you, you'll know that there Daniel is interpreting the dream of King Nebuchadnezzar, the dream of the statue made out of all the different materials that was eventually uh, destroyed by this stone that grew and filled the earth. And as Daniel tells Nebuchadnezzar, That's a vision of a whole series of earthly kingdoms which are going to come after his time and which are ultimately going to be overcome by the arrival of the kingdom of God which is going to destroy them and grow and fill the earth. But see, after Daniel says that to Nebuchadnezzar, he says, this is going to happen in the days to come. This is future. It's not now. It's going to come in, 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 in time to come. It's a long time away. And John quotes those words or alludes to those words, but he does something clever. He changes some of the key words and he says instead, this is about what must soon take place. The time is near. See, what John is saying is that for, what, for, for, for Daniel, what was future, for John, for his churches, for us as well, is now. He's saying the kingdom's arrived, that vision has come to pass. Even now it's here and beginning to fill the world. We are in the last days. For Daniel that was a long way off. But for us here it is now. 
Revelation, this unveiling, is about today. It is about the whole of time between the arrival of God's kingdom in Jesus Christ and his second coming. That's what this book is about, that whole period of time. It is about John's time, it is about this seven churches' time, as much as it is about our time as well. What God is doing is essentially peeling back heaven and saying, this is what the world looks like in the last days, in your time. This is what history is like from my perspective. Take a look and see. And that's confirmed for us in who this uh, book is addressed to. Look again at verse 4. John says, John, to the seven churches in the province of Asia. That's that's not Asia as we think about it. That's Asia as in modern-day Turkey, uh, towards the Middle East. Uh, Who are those churches? We'll look at verse 11. Uh, Write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia and Laodicea. See, these are real churches. They're seven actual churches. We know where those places were. We know that there were churches in those areas and that is whom this letter was written to originally. But what you might have noticed is each of them didn't get their own letter, did they? They didn't get a personalised letter to the church of Ephesus or to the church of Smyrna. They all get to read each other's letters. They get one letter that's sent to all of them. And in fact, when you look at the book of Revelation, it's only actually a small fraction of this this book that's addressed directly to those churches. The rest of it addresses the whole church across all time and across the world. And what's more is the seven churches, that number seven is a symbol throughout Revelation, throughout uh, Jewish thinking, of fullness. We're going to see it again and again throughout this book, the number seven indicating fullness. And what we're being suggested here is that this is again not just to these seven churches but to the fullness of churches in all times and in all places. See, the clues stack up. This letter is for us. This letter is for our time. Uh, Say this afternoon you get a text message on your phone. How are you going to work out if it's for you? I mean, you're probably not going to think about it consciously. We We rarely do that. But you're, you're going to subconsciously work through all the clues, aren't you? Uh, if, if the contact is known on your phone, you'll know it's probably uh, for you. If not, you might recognise the number uh, of someone you know. Uh, the sender might identify themselves I- in the text message. The, the content may be particularly relevant to you or to that time. Uh, the, the text may address you by name, in which case you'll know it's definitely for you. But but subconsciously we we kind of run through all those clues, don't we, and and work out, yes, this text is for me, I need to pay attention to it or ignore it and reply at some time convenient to me. And the same is true for Revelation. When we put all these clues together, when when we stack them all up, it's clear that this book is for us. Not just for seven ancient churches, not for certain churches at certain times, whether in the past or in times to come, but for the whole church. It's for us. And so when we read Revelation or when we read books telling us what Revelation is about, we need to keep that in mind. We need to be asking ourselves, is this showing me how Revelation addresses me or addresses us today? We need to ask ourselves, would this make as much sense to the original churches as it is to me? And if the answer is no to either of those questions, then it's quite possible that we've missed 
what Revelation is talking about because it has to satisfy those criteria. Now the problem is much popular literature on Revelation doesn't meet those criteria. Uh, either it's, it's irrelevant because it sets it so far in the past or in the future that it means nothing to us or they make it so specific to today that it would mean nothing to the original audience. It would be entirely incomprehensible to them. Uh, some of you may remember in the late 80s uh, a book came out, 88 Reasons Why the Rapture is in 1988. And all, all those reasons were very specific to that particular decade and time, uh, none of which would have made any sense to John. Uh, neither would the fact that the very next year came out a book, 89 Reasons Why the Rapture is in 1989. Uh, after that, the, the author learnt their lesson and made books that were less date-specific, none of which became particularly famous, thankfully. But, of course, in our own time, and some of you may be aware of the series, the Left Behind series, our own time, 20 years ago, roughly, uh, again, which made absolutely literal readings of Revelation, which would have been totally bizarre had you been in the church in Ephesus reading this letter. It wouldn't have made sense, which is a great clue it's not right. I mean, the, the, the books don't even make sense 20 years later. So we can be confident that's not what Revelation is talking about. Here's what we can be confident about. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting and training in righteousness. That's what Paul writes in 2 Timothy and Revelation is included in that. It is not a book for, for our intellectual speculation, for, for, for curiosity about future times. It is here for our encouragement and our blessing. It is here to teach, rebuke, correct and train us in righteousness. And in fact, that's actually what Revelation tells us itself, isn't it? Look at verse 3. Blessed is the one who reads the words of this prophecy and blessed are those who hear it and take to heart what is written in it because the time is near. This book is not about satisfying our curiosity. It is about giving to us blessing. Good things are held for us in this book. Not in unscrambling its clues, but in taking it to heart, literally keeping it doing what it says, obeying it. We are less to guess what Revelation is about and more to do what it says. And what it says we're going to see in the coming weeks. So firstly, not forget, we're not to forget uh, that Revelation is for us, but secondly, neither are we to forget when we read it who it's from. Because Revelation 1 is at pains to make that clear to us. Uh, who is this book from? Well, it's from Jesus. That shouldn't come as a surprise. It's there explicitly in verse 5. Uh, look at verse 5. And from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead and the ruler of the kings of the earth. What's Jesus like? Well, we have an incredible picture that describes him. Look at verse 12. Uh, I want to read down to verse 18 because it's, it's a great picture. I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me and when I turned I saw seven golden lampstands and among the lampstands was someone like a son of man, dressed in a robe reaching down to his feet and with a golden sash around his chest. His head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp double-edged sword. His face was like the sun shining in all its brilliance." 
When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Then he placed his right hand on me and said, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead and behold, I am alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death and Hades. Uh, There's just image upon image. You know, John can't even express himself. What he sees is just so glorious and so wonderful. This is who Jesus is. First of all, he's the one who is alive. He's not dead. This is not a spirit merely that Jesus sees. This is Jesus in the flesh, standing before him, risen, alive and glorified beyond comprehension. John wants us to see that that Jesus is God. He's divine here. He he has head and hair like white like wool, uh, a voice like rushing waters. Again, he's he's alluding to Daniel, to the vision of of the Son of Man that Daniel had. Uh, there in Daniel 7, he, he saw this, this figure like a son of man being ushered into God's presence and given a throne and authority and glory. And John is saying, that's Jesus. That's happened. That is who he is. He is fully God. That fully authority figure. He is an ultimate power. He is the ruler of the kings of the earth, we're told. A sword of conquest goes out from his mouth. He's in control. There's no power like him. He's, he's dressed in a robe. He's, he's glory, proclaiming he's won. He's not dressed for a battle as if he's about to go and fight and then win the victory. He's already won. He's dressed for celebration. The battle's finished. He's conquered. He has overcome. Jesus, even now, is alive as the victorious, the utterly victorious king. The war is over, the struggle is finished. And Jesus has triumphed. And now in all his glory he is calling the shots of how history will play out. There is nothing beyond him. There is nothing over him. He is the supreme authority over all things. He calls the shots. Uh, I learned a little while ago there's a variation in, um, in pool, in, in playing pool, uh, where you need to call the shot that you make before you play it. So you have to describe... Uh, the shot, what's going to happen to all the balls on the table as a result of your shot and if anything uh, happens differently to what you say, you you get penalised. You can imagine how challenging that is, so you need to say, okay, uh, red to to centre pocket, cannon off the yellow and come to rest against the right cushion. Well, I don't know my terminology, but something like that anyway. You can can imagine how challenging that is. Uh, For me, and I I guess for most of you, pool is really about hidden hope, (laughs) you know, take a chance and see what happens. Uh, it's only the true masters who can really play it like that and, and actually describe what's going to happen and maybe even get it right. But what John is saying here in Revelation is Jesus is the true master, not just of Paul. He's the master of history. He can, he can say what's going to happen because he's calling the shots. He's never going to be wrong because not only is the past in his hands but the present, the future are also held secure by him. He's overall, he's supreme, he's at the centre. There's, there's no enemy left to overcome, there's no battle to be won, no challenge is going to arise. It's all held by him. It's all secure, it's all safe. And when we read Revelation, we cannot forget that. You know, when you get lost or caught up in the details or in, in all the brushstrokes, ask yourself, what is this telling me about Jesus? How is this showing me his victory? How is this showing me him in control? Because when you ask that, you'll ground yourself. You'll you'll reorient yourself 
into what this book is teaching you all about. Because that's what Revelation is about. Jesus at the centre, Jesus in control, Jesus victorious, Jesus already overcome everything. Uh, You'll see it as you read through it, you'll see it as we work through it. Revelation is full of battles and struggles and conflict but what you'll also see is there's no uncertainty. In fact, it's all written in the past tense because the battle's won. The victory's already happened and it was Jesus. Jesus has won. And that is how, that is why Revelation is for our blessing. Because again and again we see Jesus victorious. Not Jesus will win as if he hadn't yet, but Jesus has won. The victory is his and therefore the victory is ours too. Revelation is not a book of possibilities. It is not a book of uncertainties. It is a book about Jesus. Jesus triumphant. Jesus the lamb who was slain, whose death has overcome this world. Jesus the first and the last. Jesus who holds the keys of death and the grave. Jesus who is over every power and principality. Jesus who is the king of kings and lord of lords. So when you read it, read it with him at the centre. So Revelation is a word for today. It is from the king of forever. But finally, it is addressed to a people who are very special. Look at how it describes Jesus' people. The church. Us. Have a look at the second half of verse 5. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and has made us to be a kingdom and priest to serve his God and Father. To him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. We are loved by him, is what Revelation is telling us. So much so that he would shed his blood to give his life for us. We are free, literally loosed from sin, from its captivity, from its punishment, and not only loosed, but made his own, special and precious to him. Uh, Way back in Exodus 19, God, God said to the people of Israel as they gathered as a nation before Sinai, you will be for me a kingdom of priests, and a holy nation. And now Jesus says to you and me, to the church, you are a kingdom. You are priests to serve our God, our Father. It has happened. It is true in us. See, we, that is the church, have been grafted into God's plan. And all that privilege, all that honour that was promised to Israel is given to us in Jesus. Not a, not a story of earthly comfort or wealth or prestige, a story of suffering and endurance, as John says, but a story of us at the centre of God's purposes. We're in the box seat of what's to come, we're being told. Not because we're so great, but because the love and grace that has been lavished on us in Jesus is so great. And what a privilege that is. John sees in his vision Jesus walking amongst these seven golden lampstands, holding seven stars in his right hand, And Jesus opens up that picture for us and tells us what it's about. Look at verse 20. The mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and of the seven golden lampstands is this. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Still a bit hard to work out what that means, especially the angels. There's lots of different theories. But I think 
what best makes sense of it is the fact that Jesus is saying the churches have heavenly representation. (laughs) They have a presence not just on this earth but beyond this earth as well, represented by these stars, by these angels. Uh, Even each church has heavenly representation. It's present not just here, not just in the now, but in heaven as well. And what's more, in Jesus' right hand, held safe, the most secure place in existence. And the, the, the seven lampstands confirms that. Uh, the lampstand was, was something that stood in the, the temple. Uh, it was there in God's dwelling place. It shone a light uh, to his house. It was before him uh, for his glory, for his service. And Jesus is saying, that's the church. That's us. We're, we're before him. We're in his presence. We're in the holy place. We're there for his witness. We're, we're there for his glory, for his work. That is what the church is all about. And as if that wasn't enough, we have this picture of Jesus with us because he is amongst the seven golden lampstands. He's, he's not far off. He's not distant from us. He walks amongst us. He is with his church keeping us and holding us. The King of all, the glorious, risen, conquering Son of God is with his church and with his people. See, what Revelation 1 is telling us, that that us, that, that we, even our church, are special to Jesus, precious to him. Uh, many years ago on our honeymoon, uh, we, were, we, were, we were holidaying, obviously, on our honeymoon, as you do, uh, but, but quite limited budget-wise, being students. So we, what we did was we booked a little bit of accommodation before we went and we thought whilst we're away we'll just use websites, bowl up to hotels and get the cheapest standby rates that we can possibly get. Turns out that worked out pretty well. Uh, we realised that when we turned up at the hotel that we'd, we'd booked online for an incredibly discounted price. Uh, we turned up in our rent-a-bomb. We had a 20-year-old Magna with almost no paint left on it. Uh, and got offered valet parking, (laughs) which is very nice. Uh, A very well-dressed butler came and took our rather shabby luggage. We were given a welcome drink uh, and something I never knew existed, a refresher towel. Uh, We were given a personalised tour of the facilities. Our room was turned down for us, uh, etc., etc. To this day, it is still the swankiest hotel I've ever stayed in. I don't know how we ever lucked into it. And we were made to feel so special. We didn't deserve to be. We were 20-year-old students, broke, like the poorest people in this hotel by a considerable margin. But they made us feel great. Attention and fuss and and luxury was lavished on us. We really felt special. And and, and that's what we're being told here in Revelation 1. You are special. (laughs) You are are truly special. This this fuss and, and attention and privilege is being lavished on the church, not because we paid the right amount of money to earn that, but because Jesus loves us, because we are precious to him and that's what he wants to do for us. That is who we are to him and we're going to see that again and again through Revelation. I mean, what an encouragement that is. Think of these, these poor, small, oppressed churches that John wrote to. Jesus loves them. Jesus is with them. They have a, a unique place in his plan. What an encouragement to us. No. Let's be honest, a small church in a pretty out-of-the-way sort of place, pretty, no, no offence, pretty average-looking, the Reformed Church of Olverston. And Jesus loves us. And he is with us. And we have a place in his eternal plan 
we are at the, at, the, at the centre of it because of his grace. He identifies with us. We're, we're his forever. We get to share in his glory. We get to share in his victory. He fills us with his spirit. He blesses us with his riches. I mean, doesn't our church look different when we see it through this viewpoint? When we see it as Revelation 1 holds it up for us. This church, our church, is a church that's central to his plan. This church is his beloved possession. This church he died for. This church he holds in his hands. This church shares in his victory. This church is filled with his spirit. This church is a light for his glory. This church is key to his purposes. This church shines for his praise. See, isn't it remarkable that when God peels back heaven to give us a glimpse of what history is about, we see our church... Our church in glory, in God's purpose, in his use, beloved to him for all time. Isn't that a vision worth seeing? See, the heart of the book of Revelation is not mystery and confusion. It is not here to bedazzle you or frighten you. It is here to hold up Jesus, the lamb who was slain, who has triumphed over all, who lives in glory and power. It is here to unveil the world around us, to show us a world of powers, true, but a world that has been overcome by Jesus and that is completely under his control and authority. And it is here for us to show us just how precious we are to him and how privileged we are in him. It is here to encourage us, to call us to be faithful and to keep us to the end. And over the next weeks, that's what we're going to see as we work through this important book together. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the book of Revelation, uh, this book that shows us our world and shows us ourselves from your perspective. Father, it shows us that all the confusion and hurt in the world around us, it's not beyond you, but it's under you. It shows us ourselves in all our weakness and fallibility and yet loved by you, precious to you and utterly secure in you. And it shows us Jesus, Jesus in all glory, Jesus alive, Jesus victorious, who loves us and identifies with us and who lavishes his blessings on us. Father, help us to see that, uh, to keep these truths close as we work through this book in the weeks ahead. May it be precious to us. May it grow us. May it encourage us as we serve you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.